big lake, Lake Hogichigumi. Lake it is said never gives up its dead when the skies of November turn gloomy. With a load of iron ore, 26,000 tons more than the Edmund Fitzgerald weighed empty. That good ship and true was a bone to be chewed when the gales of November came early. ship was the pride of the American side, coming back from some whale in Wisconsin. As the big freighters go, it was bigger than most, the crew and good captain well-seasoned. Concluding some terms with a couple of steel firms when they left fully loaded for Cleveland. And later that night, when the ship bell rang, could it be the north wind they were feeling? Wind in the wires made a tattletale sound, and a wave broke over the railing. And every man knew, as the captain did too, twas the witch of November come stealing. But on came late, and the breakfast had to wait when the gales of November came slashing. When afternoon came, it was freezing rain in the face of a hurricane west wind. When supper time came, the old cook came on deck, saying, Fellas, it's too rough to feed you. At 7 p.m., a main hatchway gave in. He said, Fellas, it's been good to know you. The captain wired in, yard water coming in, and the good ship and crew was in peril. And later that night, when his lights went out of sight, came the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald. Uh, R.I.P. R.I.P. to a legend. We love the Edmund Fitzgerald, don't we? Wisconsin, yes, Wisconsin does border Lake Superior. There, uh, the very north, there's a coast along uh, the Lake Superior side. On the other side of... Uh, the Upper Peninsula. So between the Upper Peninsula and, like, Minnesota, I think. I'm not actually very well-traveled in Wisconsin, I have to be honest. I really did cling to the, the lower coastal corridor. Because Wisconsin, like a lot of those Midwestern states, it's a lot of different uh, places. You know, they don't necessarily interact a lot. Like, for example, I grew up saying, I referred to uh, things like Coca-Cola as soda growing up, which is very true of the coasts, but in the Midwest, it's supposed to be pop. My cousins who grew up about an hour to the northwest of me in the uh, Fox River Valley, 
they all said pop, and they would come to Manor Walk, and they would say soda, and they would say pop, and I'd be like, what the fuck are you talking about? So, like, the west western part, by the that's by the river instead of the lake, I have no idea what's going on over there. I think that's, like, mostly square heads, right? It's like Lutherans. It's basically interchangeable from Minnesotans. Where they say pop. We're essentially more... Uh, More urbanized, more acculturated into urbanity, maybe? I don't know. Because Wisconsin is known as an agricultural hub, right? The dairy land. But along the coast, you know, those are all, uh, there's not a lot of farming going on. You know, that's more traditional commercial ventures. And you've got, you know, Milwaukee is sort of the farthest west, right? I'd say that Milwaukee is the farthest west and and north Rust Belt city. Uh, And even the town I come from, Manitowoc, which is an hour and a half north and is not uh, very big, it's like 30,000 people, but it had its own uh, mini Rust Belt industrial economy around shipbuilding uh, and then heavy manufacturing and light manufacturing. So there's like Manitowoc, uh, there's this big company that made yachts after World, World War II saw Manitowoc make ha- half of the U.S. submarine fleet. And then after the war, it was a uh, shipbuilding place, but there was also like Manitowoc uh, cranes and heavy machinery and the fucking uh, the ice machines. The pots and pans plant. Yeah, I don't think Minneapolis-St. Paul had the industrialization that Milwaukee did. Like, Milwaukee had had a real industrial base going there in the Menominee River Valley. Uh, and it brought with it, you know, a urbanized population. And it got, for example, like I'd say one thing about that I, marks a, a Rust Belt city is that it had a significant urban uh, black diaspora population show up Sometime around World War World War Two and after the Second Great Great Migration, if you didn't have that, I don't think you really qualify as Rust Belt because that is where uh, the last places where capital was developing and where people could move to be a new urban proletariat with an expectation that they would be able to get a job. Minnesota didn't really have that. There, uh, yeah, like it happened way later, like like uh, as deindustrialization was already taking root. So, Minnesota, so Milwaukee had a real industrial economy, uh, but it was one of the smallest, one of the last, sort of a throw-off of Chicago, uh, a place that as soon as, you know, the engine of industrial manufacturing as economic engine, as soon as that engine is removed, the idea of man- making stuff in, in the uh, manner that it is done in American urban heartland, 
you know, the places that build things, the places where the labor peace was signed after World War II. Yeah, Minneapolis didn't do industrialism. They'd had the mills. That's what you had. That's 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 like before the factories get there, you get the mills. The mills are supposed to like, but they never got there. The the crest receded before it could get to Minneapolis. Yeah, somebody's talking about how in Manitowoc you could get six DUIs before they take your license. For a long time, well after it was banned other places, it was not, first offense drunk driving was not a crime in Wisconsin. I think until the 80s or 90s, the federal government had to threaten them with taking their highway funding away, which they also had to do to get them to lower the, raise the drinking age to 21. But first offense drunk driving was not something that you could get booked for, basically. You just get sent home. So that I grew, I grew up sort of in the in the shadow of Rust Belt Wisconsin, and it didn't really get farther much farther than that. You've got Milwaukee, you've got you know the 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 little offshoots north of it, uh, Green Bay being one, but Milwaukee is like the the center of this, and it's where you get uh, the real integration of social social life in Wisconsin in the form of large uh, uh, in, influx of of uh, African Americans. That creates a cultural dynamic, and then you get the creation around that phenomenon, that urban phenomenon, these band of white flight suburbs that act as a cordon sanitaire between the rural idol of the rest of like pre-industrialized, like fully industrialized Wisconsin, uh, and and the reality of urban industrial social order. And so the cultures are different, and the politics are different. And you see in Milwaukee a real attempt by the local government in the form of the socialist administrations of the three of three of the most influential governors, or I'm sorry, mayors of Milwaukee. At uh, the key moments of, of uh, early uh, industrialization in Milwaukee, the civic government was dominated by self-conscious socialists, people connected to the socialist movement, and uh, members of a socialist party that was grounded in class. So like a real deal labor party, not like the Democratic Party. There's a fu- there is a structural difference between these two things. And that one, the Democratic Party, is essentially a, a, in a client relationship with the bourgeois. Like their existence is fully determined by the indulgence of and at the discretion, and it operates at the discretion of the ruling class. Yes, there is a grassroots support for the Democratic Party, and there is the party apparatus itself, the bureaucrats who make it up, but power is dispersed dramatically in one direction. There's at best an advisory role for the fucking populace. The, The Socialist Party exists because of the subscription of workers in the form of Buying party newspapers, being mem- uh, paying dues to the party itself, volunteering for the party. 
those structures that are filled by by uh, mercenaries, basically. Like this is how hegemony works its way through an institution. If you want to understand that concept, this is a good comparison. The people who make up the actual party itself, the ones who make decisions within the structure of the Democratic Party, are essentially mercenaries. They might have a broad political point of view, but the thing that is motivating in the government is advancement up the rungs of a capitalist system that they've invested in because they're being drawn only by uh, this position uh, as, a, as a social relationship, as a relationship to capitalism, as in not being fucking exploited by it, as in not having to actually work for a living because it sucks to do so. Socialist party, the people who make up the party, are doing it because it constitutes their identity. It constitutes their sense of self. Their participation is self-building. It is not exchanging their time for money, which is what it is within a a, uh, bourgeois political party. That is a pure time for money thing. That time is being compensated for, not with money, but by the sense that one is collaborating in the building of a better fucking world. Like, they are, you are able to live within the constructs, within the, the, uh, the incentive structures that fill the party, that pull people from the grassroots into its uh, organs, like capillary action, is commitment to principle. But that's only possible because there are jobs to be done that there is money to be distributed, that there are positions within the hierarchy that can figure out how to direct all of that grassroots desire for socialism into a coherent politics that can be effective. So there has to be a hierarchy in terms of responsibility and access to information and access to lovers of power. But that hierarchy cannot does not necessarily have to be governed by mercenary uh, capitalist self-interest. That the point of the, of the counter-hegemonic struggle within capitalism by the working class is to build counter-hegemonic institutions that internally generate a type of relationship uh, to politics and to one's priorities that is fundamentally different from the uh, mindset of the people who make up bourgeois parties. Which means that they will actually respond to the uh, incentive structure of the of the the political party and like the labor unions that are attached to it the people expressing their will through those organs then have their will earnestly carried forth by the people in the party because there's no conflict there is no sense there's no point at which There is a conflict between the self-interest of the bureaucrat, of the party member, of the politician, and the the base, the mass, the, the, the working people. Under a bourgeois party system and in bourgeois politics that assumes capitalism, like the Democratic Party, bourgeois comfort of life Distance from alienation of labor 
is a condition for the Democrats' participation in politics. They have to be able to preserve their self-interest, as defined as selfish interest, because they don't have any connection to anything greater. A socialist party would not understand uh, their relationship to their self-interest that way. They are totally willing to shape what their bourgeois comfort is, what their relationship to actual work, actual alienation is, relative to uh, their sense that they're collaborating in an expression of their actual uh, understood desire, their drive, their, their purpose that they have generated for themselves through struggle. I'm not the one who talks about Billions. I've never actually watched Billions, although apparently I should. Apparently it's very good. So you really did have, to get back to Milwaukee, you really did have like a genuine socialist party in, in embryo there, able to assert municipal power because there was this dense connection between the working class of Milwaukee the fact that a lot of them, that a massive number of them were German immigrants who all spoke German and had that, like, cultural uh, connectivity, that, that like, uh, ease of translation of concepts, that social lubricant of being, like, within a greater, like, Anglo culture, they could, you know, define each other. And uh, they were able to exercise municipal power. And so during the creation of the American industrial city at the turn of the century and afterwards, mayors like uh, Dan Hone, uh, uh, Emil Seidel, uh, are able to, and, and the Socialist City Council, more just as importantly, if not more so, were able to direct public investment into uh, uh, civil interest, into like a greater interest that, is, that uh, transcended the profit imperative. And it had an effect. Uh, but as the work, as that uh, Socialist Party was broken, and as the Democratic Party triumphed and assimilated the working class movement into its structures during the New Deal, by the time you get to the 50s and the real explosion of. Uh, of uh, industrialism in uh, in Milwaukee, and like the creation of uh, the modern stratification of uh, like wealth and and development that that has marked Milwaukee ever since then. Like they had a socialist mayor during that uh, era, Frank Zeidler, and he was able to do some good stuff. I mean, I think I honestly thank the socialists for the fact that the vast majority of uh, Milwaukee's most pristine uh, and beautiful waterfront uh, is all still public parkland. It hasn't been turned into fucking condos or uh, private yacht facilities or bullshit or some public-private partnership. But when it came to the greater challenges of of integration, for example, of, of, of how to t- 
take this group of people who are showing up last to the to the uh, buffet uh, of the industrial boom in Milwaukee, how are they integrated into the political structure? And if it is as workers, hey, you might actually be able to keep, persist in pursuing uh, socialist politics at the municipal level. But if it's as others, as, as uh, competition and threat, then bourgeois uh, political considerations will dominate everybody's voting patterns, regardless of what they do, regardless of if they're workers or not. They will be voting along the interests of their, not as their real class, but as their self-perceived class. And their self-perceived class is that of being uh, the beneficiaries of capitalism. And they wish to persist in that role. And democratic politics shape, was shaped around that resistance. And it's because of the failure to uh, maintain a unified working class party uh, political project that could compete for power at the crucial moment, which was after World War II, and specifically after the death of Roosevelt. Because Roosevelt was this massively expansive figure who was able to fit the entirety of the Democratic Party and, its, and the New Deal state that it was creating. All of those contradictions could sort of be subsumed into him because of his, uh, his personal uh, investment in the project. Like, at, by the end of his life, FDR was the New Deal state, in a real sense. He represented it to Americans, and he had to have absor- absorbed that sense. So his understanding of his project actually filled him with, like, a, I would say, actually filled him with, like, a Paul Atreides, like, Quidzak Haderach, like, uh, uh, mental uh, vision uh, or, or, uh, of his power. Because I do think that Roosevelt thought that he was saving capitalism from a crisis that would have destroyed it with the goal, I do believe, the long-term goal of transcending capitalism. Because capitalism, capitalists in the 30s, for the most part, had a relationship to capitalism similar to the relationship that, uh, that slave owners in Virginia did uh, in the early days of the Republic. Like Jefferson and those guys. They absolutely believed that slavery needed to persist in the here and now. But that it was a... Uh, and they would act politically to make sure that it was persisted, that it kept going. But... They... Uh, they would have had a long-term vision that their actions would be leading to a future of emancipation. That's what they thought they were doing. Now, of course, that was a delusion. That was them trying to paper over the inherent contradictions in their way of life that they couldn't examine. Uh, And so they discarded the idea uh, as practical in the near term. Now, I would say that by uh, guys like Roosevelt, maybe not all capitalists, maybe certainly not up-and-comers, but people who had people from families who had been rich as long as Roosevelt, by the '30s, had gotten to a point where capitalism and its vulgarities and off, and offenses to sense and uh, and aesthetics and morality were such that they were embarrassed 
for capitalism's persistence. And they hoped to move towards a future where it was extinguished. And I would say that FDR was in that tradition. Now, is that a foolhardy of him? Of course, in the same way it was of the slave owners. It's a delusion of a capitalist trying to uh, fit his mental, his self-interest into the historical moment in a way that gratifies him. A way for him to save a thing that he hates, capitalism, uh, for self-interest, narrow self-interest, and then create a narrative whereby he is doing a greater good. And he's doing it delusionally. But by 1945, I would argue that FDR's pursuit of peace with the Russians and relationships to the post-colonial South uh, were the vision of somebody who really wanted this thing to work, who really wanted to turn the New Deal into a fundamental restructuring of what capitalism means towards its eventual extermination. Now, he could not contain that contradiction forever. He was going to eventually have to come into significant conflict with either capitalism or his political project. But he never got the chance because his goddamn head exploded. And maybe it exploded from the contradiction. I always I, I wonder about guys like FDR and Lenin, where like the coming contradiction that they're not able to reconcile that they know is coming just makes their heads explode so that they can just check out of it and leave it to the next guy. And when he dies, you have this jump ball, basically, between the two existing political hegemonies that were both being subsumed under the greater New Deal project and the greater, de- the greater uh, iconography of FDR himself. And that was the uh, working class project symbolized at the level of executive power by Henry Wallace, who is not a socialist, didn't come from the socialist project, came to politics from a moral position of Yankee Puritan probity, but that position had put him on the top of a movement that was connected from, in, in layers of, dense layers of uh, functional hierarchical control from the grassroots of a multiracial, not, not obviously in the sense that we would want now, but, but much more so than uh, what the capitalist uh, alternative wanted, uh, working-class movement that expressed itself through the actions of political uh, parties like the, the Democratic Party, but also the Communist Party, uh, and then also labor unions and their associate organizations. And then there's a, a, there's a fucking wedding cake stack of authority, delegation, and demo, democratic control that ends up in the person of Henry Wallace, who believes in his project of advancing humanity by extinguishing capitalism peacefully, with the same purity of belief, Simon Pure naivete, as FDR did in his vision. But a further elaboration of it. And by 44, when FDR's health is failing, and the critical question comes, who is going to be the likely next president? Wallace, who had been FDR's third-term VP, replacing the reactionary Southerner, Cactus Jack Garner, but the party stalwarts who were willing to put this dying man on the ticket to keep things smoothly going insisted that Wallace not be on the ticket. They made it a, a non-negotiable 
condition of their participation in his renomination. And he buckled, and they put Truman, party hack, on the ticket. Meaning that in the, in the key moment that came, the party apparatus itself, governed by these hacks, by these bourgeois rentiers, basically, political rentiers, were going to impose their will, which put us in a terminal decline of capitalism towards suicidal extinguishment, the same way that the, uh, the uh, explosion of the cotton economy in the South doomed their project. And in the same way, our, our cultural uh, rulers and our ruling class, broadly understood, no longer is embarrassed about capitalism, no longer feels any of that uh, early Republican uh, disdain for its savagery, we have now decided that the savagery is a virtue, just like the old antebellum uh, planters did, the fire eaters of South Carolina did. And as that Southern political economy was destroyed from outside, so will, I think, this uh, political project. But of course, at a certain level, internal contradictions lead to external conflict at a, sort of, at a totally fixed, symmetrical relationship. Like they, they, they grow to meet one another until failure in uh, external... Uh, um, Inability to uh, resist an external con, uh, an external challenge, kicks off an internal uh, reckoning. Yeah, honestly, and this is why I am G pilled, because I can be facile and imagine. The, uh, the battle between the North and the South in the Civil War over, over, the, over like the, uh, the, I guess, the civic reality of capital extraction, like what it would be to live under capitalism, where like an atavistic and frankly barbarian uh, logic of domination, of like physical domination, is extinguished by a more, a, a equally bloodless, or I mean an equally cruel, but more uh, impersonal rule. But the, the thing that makes that impersonal rule possible, the impersonal rule of the market, is a baseline level of human dignity. Like that human rights are inextricably linked to uh, capitalism just because capitalism requires a degree of political of participation on the part of individual people that has to be undergirded by some sense that they're participating in a thing and not being compelled to do a thing. And now we are at an end state where American capitalism, which has always been the temporal spear point, like this is where the thing germinated, this is where the thing really where, where the uh, the tumor went into hyperdrive was uh, was in America. So that means that we have 
not only did we create that fucking monstrosity of a uh, of a political economy in the South, and of course a monstrous one in the North as well, one that's just one more way, uh, one more move removed from total like physical domination. And then, you know, it was defeated, but it was assimilated into the politics because their ruling class was never expropriated. The ruling class that made up that, uh, that political economy was essentially assimilated into the broader ruling class of the emergent United States instead of being annihilated and, and some synthetic uh, culture... Uh, interracial culture emerging in the South, which had to happen. Like, that caste distinction had to be broken up. And there was an effort to do so, but another another hinge point of history where the wrong alliance of powers within a party, within a, within a dominant structure of political authority in America, win in a contest for power. And I would say that the reason that uh, the contest for power, beyond just the, the coin flip stuff, like it, it, Johnson being on the, the, the president after Lincoln, even without that, you still have a massive problem there. You still have a huge uh, contradiction that has to be resolved. But at that point, Johnson represented the only coherent uh, side. The, the, the radical Republican side was built out of reaction to Johnson's policies. And so it had to be built on the fly. And when it was being built, it was being built in a, in a moment when uh, all possibility of land confiscation and redistribution was being taken off the table. And the ruling elite of the South, who had carried out the insurrection, were being mass pardoned and assimilated back into government. And where the places where uh, former slaves had been given land by the U.S. military as a military uh, exigency of war, we're having that land confiscated. And that was all on Johnson's prerogative, uh, directing this center of gravity within the greater Republican project, the greater project of winning the war, the greater union at that point, national union, as the Republicans called themselves that year, uh, project. And Johnson represented one coherent part of it. The other one was completely rift because it wasn't coherent. It made up Workers, it made up yeomen, it made up merchants, it made up the professional uh, class that supported the Republican Party and made up the officials within the Republican Party, but not around a central idea other than getting rid of slavery. But beyond that, there was no agreement. And you had moralists like Sumner, who full liberals who had assimilated the idea that, you know, liberal uh, free individuality was the sine qua non of uh, political liberty. Uh, and personal liberty, didn't really care about any of the crucial questions of uh, monetary policy, for example, and redistribution of land that would have made the uh, Reconstruction viable. Because he took for granted the free labor, uh, uh, hard money nostrums of the, the organized forces within capitalism that had carried out the war. But there were others. There were radical Republicans who understood the implication of emancipation and the necessity to create a new political economy in the South that would have to break up 
the power of the old rulers of the old landed class and redistribute it downward to a multiracial far uh, yeoman and and uh, proto proletariat in the south who would then relate to each other as workers instead of along racial lines and then carry out their relationship to capital as workers of course that was there the ingredients for that were on the table in 65 not over a short term not within 20 years but like i say as as a bending of the river to a point where maybe when the crisis comes again in 45 we have the same exact historical nexus and the same contours but in a in a world where reconstruction was pursued more effectively by a coordinated politically uh coherent section of uh, explicitly anti-capitalist politics around the Republican Party that could have been embodied in a guy like Benjamin Butler and was embodied in the proto-form in guys like Butler and Benjamin Wade and Thaddeus Stevens. Now, this isn't to say that racism goes away in the South or that racial categories cease to be the, the categories people view them, their identities through. No, but worker instead of being subsumed, becomes active. And the, 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 the bourbon elite who took over again after the Civil War were well aware of this. Jim Crow, there's a, there's a famous book on the subject, the strange, uh, the strange Life, or The Strange Case of Jim Crow, I believe, that traces the... Uh, Yes, C. Van Woodward, The Strange Career of Jim Crow. And it chases, it's, it, it, uh, it uh, takes the arc of post-war, post-Civil War politics in the South uh, and, chart, and is able to show pretty dramatically how the rise of uh, Jim Crow formal regimes of segregation, which were only imposed in the late 1800s, like all through Reconstruction, there was no formal apartheid. Uh, like there were interracial governments during this period. There were black governors and black uh, members of the House and a black senator. The, but that went down. All oh, there were black uh, judges and there were black um, sheriffs and mayors. Real power, and wouldn't you know it? That power was most concentrated in places where black land tenureship was strongest, like in South Carolina. Places where land tenure was weakest, you had it, the, 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 the uh, failure, even before the, the, the uh, economic collapse of, of, of uh, 1872 drew, drove a stake in the heart of Reconstruction. Maybe that happens no matter what, and Reconstruction starts failing then. But if it starts failing with a certain momentum around political expressions of uh, multi-racial land redistribution uh, and politics around it, around the Republican Party, connected to a national party that had its support in the middle classes and advanced progressive working classes of the North that could have allied itself as a new pole of politics. Not one that wins, but the one that exerts pressure and becomes uh, a foil for capital. Instead of what we did get, which is that a capital assumes complete control of both political parties after the war, and then 
politics is entirely a farrago of regional and racial uh, uh, anxieties and uh, repressed rage. Uh, Southerners voted for Democrats because they hated the North. They resented their defeat at their hands. They hated the uh, uh, the th- the serpent of li- of in- of uh, the serpent of freedom and class solidarity that uh, had been unleashed, and they wanted to defend uh, their their position there. And in the North, you voted for the Republicans because Democrats had killed your dad. Democrats are the reason that your cousins all died shitting themselves in a latrine uh, in a fucking Union camp before they even got to see battle. You vote the way you shot. That's what they said. Vote how you shot. And that became the only basis. Everything else was subsumed because politics could not rep- express the real felt alienation of, of, of workers and farmers as industrial America really got going and really started stripping them uh, of their autonomy. And that is why, you, as much as the, you, you, have to, you have to affirm that the Union was the progressive force during the Civil War, they were doing necessary work. But they were doing necessary work that at some point would be contested and had to be because it was still a capitalist project. And there was no real working class at that point developed in America to, to uh, actually express itself there because free real estate had bought off time for class consciousness to emerge in America. Free real estate and slavery kept class consciousness from developing until after our first great Paroxysm, our first great political crisis within American capitalism, which was the Civil War. And that's the root of American exceptionalism, which hilariously is a term that was coined by Stalin when he was making fun of American communists who claimed that because of free real estate, the United States was exempt from certain laws that Marxists thought governed class dynamics. And I'm sorry, he was correct. America is exceptional. And the difference is, is in the equation that dominated the emergence of capitalism in every European state, which were the first ones to get it, there is a fundamentally different uh, equation. There is, there is a factor that did not exist, and that is frontier. But if you Because the formula says at Y amount of social pressure, X degree of political consciousness emerges. Well, no. At Y degree of political pressure, X amount of free real estate is is accessed. X amount of redistribution downward through uh, imperial domination comes next. Which means you don't get political formation until way down the line over here. Down here is where you get it. And then it only goes so far before it's interdicted by a further expansion. Now, that is no longer the case. And a lot of our uh, confusion about politics bums down to the fact that we're operating out of an extinct paradigm. The same way that those European communists 
were operating out of an extinct paradigm, even though they didn't know it. Because America had already created a new formula that was more amenable to capitalism and, and <coughs> stabilized it the way that a virus variant will stabilize its relationship to the health of its host to prolong its ability to replicate itself. But the thing that built it, the structures that built it, the institutions of deliberation, politics, culture, business, uh, transportation infrastructure, energy, uh, culture, anything you want to talk about, whatever, whatever uh, extrusions of politics uh, and culture you want to talk about, they were all forged under the assumptions that undergird that formula, where, yes, there's wide degree of, uh, of, uh, ex of expropriation. And everyone agrees that that's fine. As long as we have that, we can operate under these conditions. But we no longer operate under those conditions. The formula has changed because all those externalities that were priced out of every one of these fucking formula have now come back. The, the externalities that are necessary for any of the equations to work. Coming back. Because profit is the accumulation of abstraction. It is taking real... It is making real something that is abstracted from a natural fixed environment, from a relationship of objects, the way that all other uh, human activity is defined by. Like we live within a matrix where our actions have consequences and we see, in our, we see them and then we get the, the uh, immediate response or close enough for us to understand where it's coming from and then operate accordingly. We are conditioned and controlled away from da doing damage, lasting damage, because we're actually connected to the uh, cause and effect cycle. The development of technology allows us to function more efficiently by essentially removing ourselves or that portion of ourselves that is making decisions away from the immediate cause and effect of the world around us. And we create new realities that are abstracted away from these effects. And it, it, is, the, it is the distance from them that allows us to create new technologies, to intensify our, uh, our technological intervention with our environment in order to allow us to live more uh, soothed lives, lives that are more comforted, the thing that we all feel, the desire to not hurt, but to, to actually feel good, however we define that. And over, and over time, we define it entirely according to our ability to avoid unpleasant sensations and uh, pursue pleasurable sensations.
So we are now trapped on, all of us, hedonic treadmills, but the, what makes it impossible to break out of that through logic and through intervention in media and trying to explain it and, and come to a consensus is that all of us configure that feeling differently. We are all processing the pain, the misery that is coming back to us, both literally in the sense that people are having to flee wildfires and, and, and you know, people are having to move away from homes that are no longer uh, stable. People are uh, being dispossessed for multiple years by the destruction of infrastructure by uh, storms. I mean, cap- climate change, which is this return of an, exter- of an externality that was priced out of politics and, and of culture and of our understanding of the world, by the magic of technology, and by the promise of ease. Because the democratic drive that defines politics in the era of mass populations and and, and industrial technology, not coincidentally, is one of a demand for release from pain. And different answers for what that means arise out of class struggle and out of the creations of classes and and the recreation of cultural uh, structures that reflect a new reality to certain people based on their conditions of exploitation. And different answers come up. And one of them eventually becomes a self-conscious working class socialist movement, according to Marx. One of many responses. The people who are exploited in X way have Y reaction. And in Europe, they mostly did. In America, they did, but on a much more delayed scale because of the intervention of land. And it was the problem of land dispensation that led to the Civil War because the imperative of uh, expansion was so fundamental to the American project that even though it was raising political questions that the constitutional order was incapable of resolving and therefore leading towards a fucking uh, unnecessary, from an economic point of view, uh, political civil war, neither side could put the brakes on it because it was so fundamental to everyone's project. Making money out on the frontier. People are pissed. People want bread. Give them a chance to make it on the frontier. And not just in terms of people who are going to move there, but people who can uh, speculate in the stock of railroad companies. The Kansas-Nebraska Act, which shattered the uh, Compromise of 1850 and really did bring the antebellum slave controversy to its endgame, was largely the product of Stephen Douglas, who had a huge amount of money invested uh, and stood to gain an incredible amount from the, uh, uh, <clears throat> the success of... Uh, uh, railroad routes to, to create the Transcontinental Railroad. Like the Transcontinental Railroad is going to have to run through land to get there. And, and uh, Douglas and his cronies had an in for land along a corridor that ran through this territory that had not yet been brought into statehood, which it would have to be in order to pursue this project. 
And so the answer of, well, how about we just let them vote on it, which is kicking, it, kicking the can down the road. And so they said, we'll do that. We'll kick the can down the road. And they did, but you can only kick the can down the road so far because the formula is so dependent on expansion, it cannot countenance any political challenge to it. The political challenge is, dispute, is, dis, is dispersed uh, by some subsidiary question, in this case, extension of slavery. Now, we're at a similar stage for American capitalism as Southern, Southern slave capitalism was, which is how the hell do we sustain a political economy when our growth matrix has been uh, inhibited? And there's no answer. There's no internal answer. Instead, we get this culture war around questions of identity that is uh, the product of 150 years of failure of the uh, working class in America to cohere in the face of America's imperial project, which subsumed and neutralized its political uh, power at every stage. So now we have this thing that has dominated a world economy. Of course, you know, the relationship politically is different in other countries, but it doesn't really matter because everyone is pegged to us. Everyone is pegged to us. They're all their own relationships. They're all their own political and economic relationships to this capital world system. But they're all in a relationship that is defined by our actions. And, and the, 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 the engine of the thing is in our spending economy. And in the, the currency that is uh, uh, supported by our world-spanning military. But there are things within that. like uh, So China gets capitalism way late. China gets capitalism basically at the very end of the line. Capitalism starts on one end of Eurasia, kind of ricochets back a bit, like... If you imagine it as like a meteorite hits England in like the 17th century, and it just sends shockwaves across the globe, and then capitalisms develop nationally in different areas over different time. You get the echo coming out. They're all getting capitalism in, in utero in some way as they're relating to this emerging world market. And then eventually... Uh, a crisis within it emerges that leads to some configuration of forces that carry out modernity. That's what it is. Is that capitalism is the, is, the, is the wheel pulling all of these carts. But the way that it is expressed culturally and politically is different in every place depending on the conditions of development that existed when capitalism had to start uh, emerging there to compete with other states. And so the reason the Russians are the only place uh, are the only ones who are able to carry out a communist overthrow of European capitalism is because it was the least developed. It had the least developed institutions to resist. And so it was the working class Communist Party of Russia that had to carry out modernity, a task that Marx put on the hands of the bourgeois, put on the hands of capitalism. Because 
It would be the changing of this condition. It would be the liberation of humans that would give communism its social validity and would make people work on a social basis, sacrifice personal ambition of comfort for a project because they feel like they were part of something. It's actually that they had the most powerful ruling class because the antibodies that resist uh, working class power are not to be found in the raw, pot- uh, in, the, in, in the exercise of like raw feudal land tenure the way that the Romanovs did. It's by the institutions of the middle class. It's by, it's by the relationship between uh, Urban cosmopolitanism, which is independent of capitalism, I would argue. I think one of the fundamental problems a lot of uh, alt-righties and and post-lefties have is that they they think that uh, capitalism is somehow inextricably linked to urbanity and cosmopolitanism. That is incorrect. Those things are older than capitalism. Those things exist everywhere. Urbanity and and, uh, the the, the, uh, expansion of horizons of... uh, of the dissolving of distinctions, I would guess, along uh, like rigid categories of identity. Uh, they correspond to being in a group of, being in, in, in close quarters with other people. That is a relationship that then is, interacts with capitalism in different ways, depending on what sort of social structures have emerged when capitalism is imposed on them. And capitalism very much was imposed on Russia by the Romanovs in an effort to stave off what happened to the Chinese coming up at the very end of the caboose when capitalism was forced on them at the barrel of foreign guns. Capitalism comes for the the Russians and the the Chinese at about the same time in the mid-19th century. The Russians abolished serfdom. The Chinese go to war with England and get their asses kicked. And what that means is that when the crisis comes for China at the end of the caboose, because we're going basically from the areas that are most dominated by massive, long-standing imperial uh, state structures that are not around internal competition and not subject to the imperatives of uh, uh, to to like efficientize in the in the face of like annihilation, uh, where they're, they're dominated by a need to cooperate socially against a uh, horse-based nomadic culture that is like a direct competitor with your way of life, to the places where the pressures of uh, of nomads are basically non-existent because of insufficient grazing land and uh, mountain ranges, uh, but. You have a, a small cluster of peninsulas uh, and, and knotty outcroppings and, and islands that uh, are all internally defensible and uh, therefore undominatable from outside. So that's why capitalism emerges there, explodes there, and then is adopted internally or imposed externally depending on how developed those uh, social technologies 
to translate, not, not the actual technologies, because the Chinese had all the technologies that made um, capitalism before, long before Europe did. It is the uh, political conditions that allow them to be uh, utilized. And those are generated by new property relations that emerge in England in the early modern period. Like, if you want to know why capitalism might destroy the earth, it might come down to the fact that that goddamn area between France and England that they call Doggerland, and that was like 100,000 years ago, was above ground and connected the British, uh, mainland, the British Heart Island, England, to France. If that thing never, if that thing never filled in, maybe we don't get capitalism as the dominant uh, like programming for like all social interactions at the point when our ability to manipulate technology is almost superhuman and godlike. I just imagine. Napoleon, with his 200,000-man army. I just listened to an episode of uh, Age of Napoleon about this that inspired me to think about it. 200,000 men standing on one end of, a, of, of a, this thin little strip of water who I have no doubt in my mind could have marched into England and subdued it. When you look at what Napoleon was able to do against the, the Prussians uh, and the Austrians, and the, it's, he would have had no uh, difficulty. Partially because, although the English were the world's dominant uh, military empire at that point, their army was pretty dog shit. It was it was mids. Uh, their dominance was was all naval based. Their 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 navy was where they put all their eggs, and, and it was a good investment. They maxed out uh, our navy, but that left them lagging in army. And by that point, you know. Uh, English liberalism was not yet really creating any reason for regular people to believe in it. Things were pretty miserable at that point in the pre-Chartist days for the English like working class, the emergent working class, who were just recently been dumped into cities out of the countryside after being denied the ancient rights that had animated their family's connection to the land and, and to the crown, their entire fucking, you know, the, the entirety of their family's existence in England. So their, their military does not have the elan or esprit de corps of, of, uh, of Bonaparte's. They don't have the genius of Bonaparte. He marches across that strait. He fucking dices and slices those motherfuckers. And, of course, it wouldn't have even have gotten to that point by then because there would have been no distinction, you know? It's just a, It's just a way to say, at no point... Could England have escaped the wrath of the rest of Europe the way that they were once they unleashed capitalism on the rest of them? Once they beat them over the head with English uh, liberalism and made them subdue and destroyed all of their cherished traditions and, and ways of life? Uh, because the immediate promise of capitalism imposed from without, as it was by the English in most of, the, uh, most of Europe, uh, is everybody loses out. It gains nobody, except for a small uh, strand of merchants in the cities who are able to take advantage of their, uh, their proximity 
to the to the trade nexus and, and be able to just sit on those axes of trade, basically. Everybody else gets the shaft. Serfs, even serfs, like, oh, you're liberated. Congratulations. You get uh, now, if you don't sell your, uh, if you don't in- intensify your uh, efficiency, if you don't basically exploit yourself, you're not going to be able to feed yourself, even though you live on, the, on your own fucking property, even though you can grow your own food. You're now depending on, you now have to, are not compelled to sell in a market relationship. Uh, the artisans who had, who, had, who had been like in the cities living in a urban cosmopolitan milieu for centuries at this point uh, are, are dispossessed of their, uh, their, of the power that they had accumulated. At, they had, in many of the cases, been able to build guilds that acted as sort of bourgeois, proto-bourgeois mechanisms of like class solidarity to uh, affect, to guarantee like their own conditions of work. And that was being dispossessed too. And even the fucking ruling classes, even the tenured landholders, the, the, the barons and the margraves and the kings and queens, they were having to, as a condition of this thing, uh, devolve power to representative institutions of this new emerging bourgeois they didn't want to do that either. They fought it kicking and screaming. And the Romanovs fell because they couldn't handle what was happening. And they were too inbred and stupid to recognize it. But they had too much power, and there was no countervailing power within the bourgeois to resist it. They tried to push the lid off. With They'd been doing it for 200 years, from the Decembrists to 1905, or the, uh, the, the, fucking, uh, the Decembrists, the... Uh, Oh, what were they called? The Narodniks in the 1880s. And then 1905, they were trying and trying to get together some sort of liberal opposition to Tsarist autocracy, and they couldn't do it. It wasn't happening fast enough. They weren't uprooting fast enough. Because nobody had any interest to do it except for this small middle class that was undernourished. In China... There's nothing obviously stable that can oppose communism when it comes. But when it comes, it's not really the same formula as existed in Europe. Because here, there is a base nationalism that in Marxist theory is alloyed out of working class movements in European capitalism because uh, of their conditions of competition with other states which didn't exist in China. What they got in China was a revanchist domination, a century of humiliation, as it was called, that uh, informed all of liberal and then communist responses to the decaying, uh, the decaying uh, Manchu dynasty. And that is why uh, they were able to tack to the neoliberal center uh, in the 70s, because they were carrying out a self-consciously nationalist project. Remember, they talked about socialism, they talked about communism with Chinese characteristics. And what that boiled down to is, with a 
commitment to China as a nation, a commitment to China as a polity, not necessarily as uh, just one representative of an international working class, but as a politically particular unit. And so that gave, by the 70s, you know, you have the great paroxysms of the Cultural Revolution as Mao and all those nervous students try to stave off capitalism. They can feel it coming, and they try to stave it off, but there, there's insufficient uh, capitalist technological development to facilitate it. You're sitting on top of a, of a uh, stagnant, a stagnated economic engine, something that got hooked into the capitalist world system in the 19th century and had barely built any kind of uh, internal industrial economy and had done very little to uproot people from the land, which is a necessary condition of modernity. So they had to carry out modernity. And like the Soviets... Once you do that, you have to have a mass expiation of guilt. So the despoilations of the of the the famines of collectivization in Russia lead to the Great Terror and the purges, just as the Great Leap Forward leads to a mass internal uh, cannibalistic frenzy an attempt to, to do something that was essentially impossible, to have a communist movement carry out modernity. I said, they say biggest cities in the world. Cities is not capitalism. Cities isn't capitalism. Capitalism is what brings nationalism. You can't have one without the other. Modern nationalism is a is capitalism's neurotic crisis of identity as it's uh, as capitalism uh, dominates private life uh, as it creates a private sphere and as it imposes violently upon people. As I said, this process in Europe is felt as a declension everywhere. It's felt as a downward turn. And that blame has to go somewhere. And the, the blame cannot be internal because that doesn't do the job of facilitating uh, civic coercion. or uh, It doesn't do the job of facilitating civic consent. So that's useless. It has to be an external enemy. It has to be another nation. It has to be another language. And so communism, when it comes to China, comes on top of nationalism in a way that it doesn't necessarily do. In Europe, where capitalism, nationalism had been developed before coherent working class institutions had emerged, there's an inoculation against nationalism. Cities mean industry, but that industry is not necessarily capitalist. 
What makes a capitalist is when everyone engaged is engaging in a market relationship because they are compelled to. Where they're following a logic that is not dictated by their uh, consensual assent to market relations. Does it mean that that means that the the uh, the communist part burns out in the Cultural Revolution? How could it not? I mean, I know people like to do epic memes about, oh, I want to do a base struggle session of Jeff Bezos or something. The reality of the Cultural Revolution was monstrously traumatic for everyone involved. You can argue about the green shoots and like the Shanghai Commune and, and like there was good parts of it, sure, but it was uh, in every respect a nightmare. And it is one that extinguished, really, the communist project. But that left the nationalist project. And so China was able to essentially transition from being a communist state to being a Cold War developmentalist state. But with the trappings of communism and the, and the international orientation of communism. We've never had a communist state. I know that feels like, that seems like a cop out, but we have not. We have had states within a global capitalist system ruled by bourgeoisified party apparatuses that had greater or lesser devotions to an undergirding social project. And so the the thing about that is is that means that there's plenty of reason to support the Soviets after the after, during the Cold War. They're clearly the superior formation within this structure, but they're still within a capitalist mode of production that dominates. They have to extract surplus value from workers, and they have to also alienate the workers from their autonomy over their lives. It has to happen. And so now... China has been able to do the developing part of capitalism with a Chinese state project called communist, called nationalist, whatever it is, with certain assumptions undergirding that, that mean that however they want to call it, you want to call it communism or nationalism, they believe in a project of people. They believe that institutions have to serve a social purpose. Not all of them, but the uh, the relationship between capitalist modernity and Chinese identity is such that there are more there than there are anywhere else. Certainly any here. There's none here, obviously. We're governed by just human uh, reptiles, like just hollow men, skeletons. And they're just driving this thing into oblivion because they cannot recognize any human project. They can only recognize capital extraction. China still has human institutions that are able to carry out independent intervention in the market. Now what that means 
in the future in the conflict between the United States and, the, and, and China to the degree that a conflict even exists and can exist, considering how deeply intertwined they are. I don't know. I don't know what the shape's going to be. I, I'll, I'll punt on that. I don't like, I, 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 I no longer predict shit. I just try to read history now because it's easier to get a right answer when you already know what happened. But I do think that if there's someone to root for here, my God, it's not, uh, it's not difficult to understand. But the beauty part is you don't have to take any moral weight onto that question because there's nothing you can do about it. There's nothing you or I can do to put any finger on the scale of this coming conflict. All we can do is just smugly root from the sidelines. So that means it doesn't really matter and you can relax. You certainly don't need to devote yourself to finding out the truth about the Uyghurs and then telling other people the truth about the Uyghurs. Either way. I mean, yes. I would say, if somebody asked you, don't go along with all the China hysteria, that's for sure. Don't start being like, yeah, man, they're going to come and uh, they're going to connect your dick to a uh, landline and, and control you from a remote control. But I mean, just look at the response to COVID. If you want a, an example of how a social order can interact with a crisis. And of course... The response there is, uh, oh, but they're so authoritarian about it. If you like that, if you think that's better than what we have, well, then you're, uh, you're a bug person who wants to live in uh, the matrix and be controlled by the Ch a Chinese communist drone following you everywhere. And I just got to say, look, I don't buy any premise that starts that we're freer people than the Chinese are. Look at what we go through. Look at what we put up with. And the thing that, and this is what matters to me, is that you can point to real authoritarianism, authoritarianism in China. But the United States almost always mirrors that authoritarianism, but that authoritarianism is hidden behind the mystical, mysterious veil of the market. It has been abstracted out of political valence, but it is political! It is political choice carried out by an oligarch of control that is human in origin and that can be intervened with. But we have naturalized it because of a lack of any other cultural vocabulary, any other project to orient ourselves around. And if you're going to have that, if we're all going to live in a, in a situation where the market, some combination of technology and uh, an algorithm. I mean, this is what we're talking about. We're talking about real technology like the social credit machines and the CCTV cameras and the great firewall of China that the Chinese have. 
or just the regime of daily economic compulsion that gets us, and debt, forget any of the rest of that. Forget got to pay your bills. Debt. Debt is all of the all of Chairman Xi's regime of thugs turned into an abstract concept, detached from politics, but that still dominates your life. And is even more of a dictatorship because it is not even agreed to be political. Like, we complain about social credit. What the fuck do you think your credit score is? That is your social credit score. It determines what you can do. So, yeah, for the only, the only, the only point of intervention in this spiraling idiot fest towards some sort of confrontation over China or some retreat into a, a dim-bulbed campist sort of uh, a cargo cult around China as our savior, which is no good either. Is to just use the conflict as a way to get in as a wedge. A recognition of all of the transparent authoritarianism that we live and breathe in. And that is why our coronavirus response has been so bad. Because the market is the tyrant, that means it cannot serve social needs. The market is unconcerned with social. The market is, hate, market is in visceral uh, conflict. It's essentially the antimatter to the social. So it can only make money off of the thing. It can only extract value. It can only, it can only make a buck. So... People are forced to, you have to pay $100 to get a home, take-home COVID test. You'd think you'd want those things just given away for free. And, and of course, what this means is that the one thing that would emerge in any social structure, like if we had world communism and coronavirus happened, of course you might say, oh, the coronavirus wouldn't happen with communism. Probably not, but let's say just bad luck and something happens and we get a fucking uh, coronavirus in a, in a communist system. People would come together, fund a vaccine, and distribute it. That would happen in any structure. It is a response to the thing. Capitalism is doing it because their system runs on a, 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 a consumer economy that is being genuinely hindered by the continuation of this thing and its pressure on civic infrastructure. So there is an incentive to do something to reduce the deaths, and to reduce the sickness. So they would make a vaccine. Now, a communist country like, like Cuba, it did, for example, we can just watch. What did Cuba do? They made a vaccine. Now, we made it with a fucking, the monstrously uh, corrupt pharmaceutical industry, and it became a huge path, a, a, a huge privatization of wealth scheme where public research gets uh, privatized, for profit, which is how capitalism works. But every incentive still aligns to make a vaccine that is effective. And then, once it's available, how is it distributed? Well, if it's 
if it works, if it's doing what both capitalists and communists would want it to do, then rich people are going to want it. And they're going to want to get Americans it very quickly. Everybody else can kind of wait. And people in the global south who don't really spend a lot of money, they can wait a long goddamn time. In fact, we might not want them to ever get it. Because, hey, maybe this solves some of the problems we're having with arithmetic on our global uh, political structure. It... So everything tells you, looking at it, okay, this thing basically does what they say it does. Rushed, yeah. Probably going to have uh, unintended side effects that are going to be bad for you, definitely. I had to charge my, sorry, the phone wasn't, the stupid Mac lap wasn't plugged in. Sorry, I'm just on a roll here. I don't want to stop quite yet, even though I've gone long already. But yet you have this huge resistance to take the vaccine. And here's the thing. It is all warranted. There is no reason to trust these institutions. They're bad. They do bad things. They want bad things for you. But the thing that drives the political response to it, the thing that becomes the most coherent expression of this resistance to vaccines, ends up being dominated not by a critique of the institutions, other than as like a partisan thing, but as an expression of an individual autonomy and a transcendence of like social obligation that is literally anti-social. Like it is a denial of the existence of the social and of social obligation as a concept. Now, of course, as I said, plenty of people don't think that way. They they want they because they think it's a scam. They think it's wrong, but they accede to so much. This is what I'm saying. We accede to capitalism's absolute mandate every day of our lives. It sucks us down. It drags us down. But there's nothing we really feel we can do about it. What we can do about it is express that alienation somewhere else. We can transfer that feeling to something else. And we can assert authority and power over our lives somewhere else. And there's this vaccine that they tell you to take, and you cannot take it as a way to express autonomy. Here's me being an agent of history and not just another passive reciprocant. But there's plenty of things you could do that with. The reason people are choosing vaccine is because that is one that has a broader cultural valence. Because nobody wants to be, nobody wants to suffer, nobody wants to uh, do something different. Nobody wants to risk the punishment of uh, defying the world alone. That's why we keep doing what they tell us to do every day because we don't want the punishment. The only way we uh, participate in resistance is if we feel like someone's going to have our back and we're not going to be punished for it. 
And that is what allows us to express ourselves that way. And anti-vax sentiment can get that response. Because, not because people are expressing their alienation of capitalism. At least not in a way that is directed towards an, uh, a, a healthy relationship to our institutions. But you are hearing from petty bourgeois, would-be barons, who are mad that there is an obligation that extends beyond themselves. Because increasingly, as we're ending this, we're getting to this end stage of capitalism where the misery that it carries out is going to be much more public and much less trans, uh, and much less abstract than it used to be. There is an entire political current that is gearing up to turn that into a virtue, to say yes, like our participation in this massacre, this sanguinary carnival, is a act of virtue, and that requires denying a social. Denying a moral obligation to a social, denying the existence of a social. And so everybody ends up getting caught in this anti-social political vortex. Because that's where the because that is the only politically articulate version of that resistance you're gonna find is within the Republican Party and on the right. Because no other current exists. Everybody, everybody else is just drafting off of the, the left liberal hegemony of the Democrats. Bernie was the alternative to try to turn it into a, a question of institutions. But he got, he got rinsed. Because the people who vote are our last landowners. They're the last barons. And so the ones who deny a social are the ones who dominate the Demo- Republican Party. Now, of course, the social that the liberals believe in is a cramped liberal fantasy that is not up to the contradictions of capitalism, but they can sustain it in their suburban bubbles the same way that the delusional uh, no-society mega people can. And so the only thing that they can react to is not the compulsion of the market, but when the market is absent, when the hand of the market is not there to obscure. So the fact that the fucking thing itself is free, that it is a government intervention, it is saying, here, we're going to give this to you, fundamentally disqualifies it. It renders it an imposition of an alien and foreign body. Because the way that the reactionary American landowner uh, reconciles their participation in capitalism with all the things they hate about living and that are imposed on them, they abstract that onto the state. The state representing an other that is attempting to dominate their individuality and autonomy. So the, the, the Market can make them do anything, and it's fine, because it is nature. It's God's will, basically. But when the state does something, that is an expression of the will of this inherently malevolent other. And so they resent, they resist it. And so they're going to, when Biden got in, at the timing he got in, it made it impossible to have any other dynamic around it. And so then getting the vaccine becomes politicized. And that means anybody who is anxious for good reason about America's uh, pharmaceutical infrastructure, its governing institutions, is absorbed in a greater umbrella of this uh, 
antisocial reactionary posture. They can only draft off of it. And that's why it's very funny to see people who, in the last year or so, did a very loud, did a, uh, made a, made a spectacle of themselves sort of walking away from the left by deciding that the left is no good because it's basically just captive to the Democrats, and therefore all leftism is tainted by uh, neoliberalism, and it can only uh, fight a culture war that reinforces class divisions, and therefore decided that the Republican Party and their populist tradition would, be, would act differently, would be able to be suborned to a class project. So in the moment of this monstrous failure of a response to COVID, with people being thrown out on the streets, with people being forced to work shitty jobs and cut off from unemployment, with people being having their lives at risk because they can't get to a fucking hospital or they can't, they're afraid of what they're gonna, it's going to cost them to get the fucking vaccine. A lot of people don't even believe it's free. Uh, or or what, what's going to happen if they get sick as a result of taking it. All of that real angst and anxiety. How is it expressed politically? As a question of whether or not you should be able to eat horse dewormer and then becoming an exponent of a culture war of resentment that says, oh, the liberal elites are, are condemning my, my precious folk way of eating this medicine. All of a sudden, these people who are trying to walk away from the culture war by disengaging from the Democrats, what's this? Oh, I'm on the exact same, I'm just, I, I am on the other side of the exact same sterile, stupid argument that cannot result in class politics. What, what is the class project that comes out of telling people, yeah, don't care what the doctor tells you. Go on Facebook. As an alternative to a vaccine, as I said, that should be rationally understood to be the right thing to do. So you have to deny that, the, 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 the reality of the vaccine's effectiveness. You have to deny that and instead assume that the vain, neurotic, childish, bourgeois self-identity of these precious fat boys in the suburbs who don't want to be told what to do, that you are hostage to that perspective. And of course that means I'm going to outsmart the CDC and I'm going to take this instead and I'm going to own you by doing it because the vaccine exists. Going out of your way to take the paste is a political act and it is motivated by a childish oppositional defiance. And then you have to defend that all day and wrap yourself into a, a pretzel to figure out a way that actually this is just more proof of the, uh, the sicko dictatorship of the libs and not recognize that, oh, this is only a thing we're talking about because these guys are doing this. Why are they doing it? They're not doing it because they did their independent research. They're doing it because they saw a fucking Facebook post. It is a political act of self-identity, just like all the people posting Black Lives Matter last summer were that pissed off all these people. 
and said, we can't talk about class because we got to keep talking about race. Good luck talking about fucking class when all they want to do is be told that actually there is no such thing as class. There is no such thing as human beings. There is only me and my desires. And then everything else is just a formless gray shape that I have to fend off in any way necessary. I mean, at a certain level, you have to recognize, oh, I am writing this for uh, the indulgence of uh, just the same sort of spectating, hooting swine, the disengaged uh, spectators who are watching this country get ground into fucking bone meal, who are getting off on watching it. I'm just serving out more slop for them. And then you have to ask yourself, is this... What I wanted to do, and if your answer is, oh yeah, no, I just wanted, I just think I'm going to get, I just want to either get a job out of it, get some self-esteem, or just, I don't like sports ball, so this is just as good. And that is where the real nihilism resides. That's where the, and, and that is selected for. Everybody in all of left media, right media, media period, they're selected for mercenaries. That's why everyone is so terrified of being a grifter or of being grifted. It's because we recognize what the incentives are of this structure. And I myself do whatever like penance I can for my participation in this by trying actively not to contribute to the reactive narrative and to provide some sort of orthogonal meta-narrative. And that is, of course, self-serving, but who else is it going to serve? We're all only as uh, compelled by others as we're made to be. And I'm building my connections, but, you know, work in progress. And yeah, the real way to exercise all those demons is to help others. It's very uh, banal and uh, also vague because, you know, help is a very wide term. But yeah, I think as Potter Stevens, Potter Stewart said it, helping, you know it when you feel it, if not see it. All right, I'm off to take my horse pace for the day. Ciao.